Abigail Adams. From the Ark of Empathy.com, welcome to episode 5 of Empathy a Podcast. Our podcasts are about empathy in today's world and throughout history. I'm Todd Price here again with Kenan and Carol Heiss. Hello, neighbors. Hi there. Hello, everybody. How is everybody doing today? Doing pretty good. Anytime you can get outside, get in the lake. Yes. It's a good day. We're jumping in the lake at uh, every opportunity. It's hot <laughs> and the lake is cold and uh, I kind of like that. I hear, you're, I hear you're swimming to Milwaukee and back or something like that. Is that right? Oh, uh, if only. Yeah. We don't want to make too many people out there jealous, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, Evanston is quite a place to live. Uh, so... This week, we are looking at a woman who might be called the first American feminist, known to many people today as the wife of the second president, John Adams. She is a powerful and fascinating character in her own right. And that woman, of course, is Abigail Adams. So first, let's set this up with a little context. Uh, Kenan and Carol, who are Abigail and John Adams? Well, the... We, they come into history uh, before the uh, Declaration of Independence because Adams, John Adams, actually represented a British subject in Boston because that's the kind of person and kind of lawyer who he was. Uh, it was not a popular cause, but he took it up and, and defended the man. Well, who was the man? Yeah, name is that coming to me right saying, now? Uh, <laughs> she should have known that. <laughs> <laughs> he was a redcoat, wasn't he? Was yes, he, he was a redcoat. Red yes. yes. Yeah, and he was uh, not a popular man in Boston, his hometown, uh, where right. he decided to take up that cause. But really. but he was a very respected man in Boston for his his intellect and his for lawyer skills and uh, for his personality. And uh, he was therefore represented Massachusetts uh, in the uh, uh, 1776, uh, what started in 1774, gathering that gave us the Declaration of Independence. And he was, he and uh, Ben Franklin were the two people who were allowed to make changes if they needed to in Thomas Jefferson's uh, famous. Proclamation, and they didn't make any changes, and uh, so it was uh, it was those three that were the key people in the uh, uh, in the in writing the Declaration of Independence and publishing it and, and founding a country on it. And you've said in uh, prior podcasts that 1776 is really the beginning of the pivotal age that we're now in, and. Of empathy. Of empathy. And we're going to dig into how they didn't quite go far enough. It was the, the start of it. And, you know, we, we still have a lot of work to do, as we've been discussing. But uh, And that was uh, actually Abigail, uh, his wife, brought that up at the time. And uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about the letters that, that she wrote to her husband. He was in Philadelphia in the summer of 1776 
at the Continental Congress where they were debating whether and how to declare uh, independence from uh, Great Britain. And I guess it was England at the time, wasn't it? So what did she write to John? Well, let me just say this first, that she thought in terms of not so much a declaration of independence as they were creating a government that would have laws, and she wanted those laws to represent women. Go ahead. Here's what she wrote. Well, shall I read from the letter that she wrote to her husband? Uh, yeah, why don't, yeah. Uh, Carol, let's go ahead and start with that. Let's read that, uh, an excerpt from the letter that she wrote to John. This is perhaps her most famous letter, um, often referred to and boiled down to three words from that, from that letter, remember the ladies, but as I read these few paragraphs, you'll see that there was much more to it than remember the ladies. So here it is. In the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors were. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit no dispute, but such as you wish to be happy, willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend. Why then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless? to use us with cruelty and indignity with impunity. Men of sense of all ages abhor customs which treat us as vassals of your sex. Regard us then as beings placed by providence under your protection and in imitation of the supreme being. Make use of that power only for our happiness. That is a powerful letter, is it not? It is. It is. The thought that she is threatening a rebellion is um, a fact so buried in history that it's startling to read it. And in context of what would later become the Declaration of Independence, it says some of the same things, doesn't it? It says, uh, she says, we will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Does that uh, ring a bell? Exactly, exactly. Kind of one of the kernels of of the Declaration of Independence. But apparently it did not apply to half of the country, did it? No, nor to uh, those who were enslaved, so uh, more than half. And Native Americans. And Native Americans, yes. So... um, it was a start. It was the start, as uh, you say, Kenan, of our pivotal age of empathy. Um, but like m- uh, many starts, it uh, it was just a step in a direction, and uh, we need to take more steps. So, uh, but uh, let's let's talk uh, a little bit about John's response, Kenan. Uh, what? Uh, how did John receive this letter? Well, before I read this, I really want to tell you that they are noted for loving each other. 
and uh, they had different ideas and they were willing to fight them out but they did have a real tender feeling and she, while he was at the at the congress the continental congress in uh, um in in um, uh, philadelphia she ran the very large farm that they had and took care of the family and did all the, you know, she was a very responsible and talented person. She was also fortunately educated because she had two aunts for her, but girls did not go to school at that time, and that was one of her issues. But as to her response, it was pretty sarcastic, if not mockerish. Uh, John, mockery. John's response. John's response. Yeah. As to your extraordinary code of laws, he puts in quotes, I cannot but laugh. We have been told our struggle has loosened the bonds of government everywhere, that children and apprentices were disobedient, that schools and colleges were grown turbulent, that Indians slighted their guardians. But your letter was the first intimation that another tribe, meaning women, were more, more numerous and powerful than all the rest, were grown discontented. This is rather too coarse a compliment but you are so sassy, I won't blot it out. Depend on it, we know better than to repeal our masculine systems. We have only the name of masters, and rather than give, give up this, which would completely subject us to the dep deposition, disposition, the despotism of the petticoat, I hope General Washington and all our brave heroes would join the fight. So, uh... <laughs> He does uh, mock her, and um, it's sort of hard to read how uh, we, which I guess means we have come quite a bit further than, than uh, where they were back then. And very slowly, very slowly. Very slowly, and we'll talk a, a little bit later about uh, the impact that Abigail had on later generations uh, of feminists. Um, so, Carol after John wrote that response to Abigail, what did she say in turn? She, in turn, she wrote, I cannot say that I think you very generous to the ladies, for whilst you are proclaiming peace and goodwill to men, emancipating all nations, you insist upon retaining an absolute power over wives. But you must remember that arbitrary power is like most other things which are very hard, very liable to be broken, and notwithstanding all your wise laws and maxims, we have it in our power not only to free ourselves but to subdue our masters and without violence throw both your natural and legal authority at our feet. Woo! Uh, she's, the part that sticks out to me is she says, arbitrary power is like most other things which are very hard or brittle, very liable to be broken. Yes. And that is exactly what we are beginning to see. Uh, one thing I wanted to, to bring us into the present with is that women leaders today are doing better against the coronavirus than their male counterparts. Yes, that's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? It is. And why is that? Why is it that feminine power is doing better in a situation like today? Well, perhaps it's, uh, perhaps it's because empathy runs a little deeper in the veins of women than men. 
and that the kind of vision that a person can have with empathy is different from a vision without empathy. Mm-hmm. Men had their own ways. In the, it was the police, the army, it was war, it was negotiation, hard-fought negotiations, whereas women uh, didn't have that power and they found other means and empathy was that means. And the women who were all the, almost all of the, as far as I could tell, almost all of the women's rights, women, uh, women's rights in the, in the 19th century had read Jane, had read uh, Abigail Adams. They knew who she was and uh, they got her, her feelings, her empathy, her, her concern for others, not just for women, but for young girls who were not allowed to go to school uh, only boys could uh, for slaves who she wanted free uh, and for, you know, she wanted democracy too, very deeply. But I mean, she had, she had the whole picture. The men, even the greatest, especially uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, uh, many of the others. Uh, Madison began to have it more when he got to the Bill of Rights and he said that we have to have, have to have our rights. Although the amendment that he started off and he, he concocted the first amendments, the amendment that gave women the rights was, a, was an amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you uh, talk in your writing about how, and you really just mentioned this, she deeply affected uh, the women in the 19th and 20th centuries who followed her in continuing this feminist uh, progress. Yeah, it, it really it is true. It, although, you know, in our history books that we read when we went to history, he was pumped up enormously. She was not. Mm-hmm. Well, but, going back to, that's an interesting point. Uh, one of the uh, things that brings to mind is how history is usually told through uh, the eyes of the winners and not the losers. So uh, those who have the power, uh, their story gets told, and those who don't are usually forgotten. So th- thankfully, her letters were preserved, and, and we're able to see this uh, this history through the, the exchanges that she had with, with John. The um, word empathy only came into the English language in the year 19, around 1900. Mm-hmm. So all the, thing, all the empathy that people had could never really fully be described in one word. And... Uh, in this campaigns, uh, we see a lot of usage, especially on the Democratic side with Joseph Biden. I don't think that uh, the president has necessarily mentioned the word. I'm not sure he's aware of that word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, going back to, uh, I, I wanted to, to ask a follow-up question in, in regards to the, the women leaders who are succeeding against coronavirus. Uh, might it also be true that the people who are most likely to have empathy are those who have themselves suffered and been on the bottom, so to speak, and not on the top? Because when you're on the bottom, you you see the world differently. You see those who are also suffering, where you're much less likely to have eyes to see that. 
otherwise. Do you think that's true? I think I think there's a great deal of truth to it. It can also go the other way, and one becomes a bully and and worse. But it's hard to imagine a person having deep empathy without having had their measure of suffering. So I I tend to agree with you. Mm -hmm. However, I think more than anything else, that I, I don't mean that I think she's very right. I think that the idea of one person can spread it like the, the, uh, the disease today, but they can spread the positive thing, the empathy. And empathy is almost the opposite thing. That's, this is what we're dealing with and not realizing it, that if we don't wear a mask, we could be hurting somebody else. If you have empathy, you have to wear a mask. And if you um, have empathy, you have to be concerned about other people. You have to say, we can't, we're not ready to open up the, um, uh, the this businesses, all the businesses, putting the bars and things like this. People who don't have it say, yes, we need to open up. We want that. We want that. And that's not the words of, empath of an empathetic person. Mm, I agree. I agree. Uh, why don't we get back to um, the Declaration of Independence? We've alluded to it a, a couple times, and there's some words in here that uh, we can draw some parallels uh, from, or, or at least better understand Abigail's uh, words in the context of what, what they did write at that Continental Congress. So uh, here is probably the most famous excerpt from the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And here's the part that is not usually continued on in red, but I think it is important for context. That, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles, and organizing its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And I purposely read that, that last part and called it out because uh, this is essentially what Abigail alludes to in her first letter to John, that, that Carol, the first letter that Carol read, that is, where she says, and uh, I'm going to be paraphrasing here, but, but essentially, um, if we don't have uh, representation, that we you know, should be able to... Uh, not be subject to that that government that they, our voice needs to be heard or we will foment a rebellion or we will foment a rebellion which of course is what this declaration of independence is exactly doing but she's saying uh we should be able to do the same thing if 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 you are going to arbitrarily rule over us men tyrants uh, without our consent or without us having a voice we should be should be able to rebel just as you're rebelling against uh, against the king. It's as though both she and John Adams were drinking from the same well, only he said, no, it's my water. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I very much think um, of the Black Lives Matter movement today 
saying the same thing. This is our water to drink as well. This is our water to drink as well, and we we will not be we will not be kept from it. I mean, the consequences of being kept from it are, are on display today, maybe as they haven't been in a long time, at least not since the civil rights movement. And in, uh, and a brighter light is shown upon them as we see the unique and disproportionate suffering of minority communities who are affected by the coronavirus. Yeah, which is just continuing to happen. Everywhere there's an outbreak, you can count on that being the case. Yes. And Everywhere. the two of you discussed that in our very first podcast, that uh, poverty has tends to cause overcrowding in a number of ways, and that it just is causes the virus to spread like wildfire. Yes, and there are unique uh, disadvantages that minorities suffer in seeking medical care. There's um, articles just this past week that African-American children who have surgery don't do as well as white children do after surgery. Now why mm. is that? Why is the, the uh, infant mortality rate, maternal mortality rate, so much higher for African-American infants and women than for white infants and women. There's reasons for it. And you've got to remember that people who are at the border in prisons and jails and cages, this is something that she would never have tolerated. She would have found ways not to do it. She would have been there. She would have been on the steps of the Capitol building. She would find a way to get her word out to say that this is not humanity. This is not empathy. This is not love of one's neighbor. This is not all All people are created equal. No, it isn't. And that, that phrase I wanted to come back to, um, do you think it is an accident that they use the word men twice and that's it? They don't, they, they don't say humans or, or people? You have to think that that it was it was meant to apply to white men, in fact, I believe men who own property, but it did not apply to women, it did not apply to slaves, it did not apply to Native Americans. Yeah, and I, I have to admit, in my younger years, I just believed it to be, you know, the royal men, which means, of course, it includes everybody. We all thought that. Yeah. And I, I think that the uh, the church has, and uh, I'm sure in some parts of the church continues to suffer from that, uh, the male-dominated language in Scripture, at least the way it's translated, uh, lends people that uh, bent towards using male-dominant language. And in some church, some churches and some portions of some religions, Women are second-class or classless members today. Yeah. Here's an interesting fact. At the very time that this was taking place, she was writing these letters at the very time that they're doing the Declaration of Independence, Boston was caught by the smallpox epidemic. 
Ah. And uh, George Washington had had it when he was young, and he knew how to cure it. He knew he had a vaccine, as it were, and it was you'd take a thread, you'd slit open, you'd put some some of the, uh, in, you know, pus thread on it. into the pus Yeah, and, and you would pull it through there, and the person would get a very mild form of it, and that would, in most cases, protect them from getting it. And that's extremely important because the British soldiers did get it, and the American soldiers didn't, and it would not have won the war. It had been the other way around. Uh, so it's the equivalent of wearing masks back then. Well, and, and here's a shout-out to both John and Abigail Adams. They were both inoculated. He was inoculated after her, and at that time, being inoculated in that way, taking the material from one of the pustules and making a little cut in the person being inoculated and putting that material into it. He, he and Abigail were engaged to be married and they postponed their wedding for over a month to allow for the time for the vaccination to take hold and render them safe. So wow. their example kind of shines in this in this time when people find wearing a mask to protect themselves and others too inconvenient. Hmm. Well, Ken, I wanted to just uh, end with one last story. Um, you, you write a, a, about how when John was vice president under Washington, uh, a freed slave knocked on their door asking for help. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, how Abigail responded? That's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, not only did they take her in, but they educated him. She did. And, uh, of course, he was away from this country for several years in the, 1880, in the 1780s because he was in Paris. And he also visited the, um, the King of England and... Uh, it was quite an engagement. <laughs> he was not very happy doing it. I mean, he, he realized that this is the guy who had been fighting against. But anyhow, they, they, she took the example that, that needed to be taken for the next 200 years and still even tomorrow. Her neighbors were um, pointedly unhappy with her for doing this. And she stood up for her. Um, it was a freed slave and said, if he wants to come in and learn how to read and write in my home, I'm perfectly willing to teach him. And she did. Which was, it had to be an astounding, outrageous thing for her to do at the time. Uh, what a great example. It's uh, similar to uh, Eleanor Roosevelt in the story of her last week, uh, sitting in the aisle between the, uh, the white side and the, and the black side of the audience. Finding a way to to make a dramatic point, kind of like throwing down a gauntlet in history. Mm -hmm. Small gauntlet. There's there's some wonderful books about her and about him. Uh, Abigail and John is the title of one. So I would urge people to take it out of the library or to find any material they can and elaborate on it and get a broader picture than we've been able to present. I will get that link from you and put that in the show notes. 
so everybody can find that. Well, thank you both. This is a, a, a great uh, podcast episode. Uh, Abigail Adams is a, a fascinating person in history. So thank you both for bringing her to light. And thank you. Our pleasure. If you'd like to give us a suggestion about a character from history that we have not covered so far, please send us an email at story at thearcofempathy.com. That's story, S-T-O-R-Y, at thearcofempathy.com. Or if you have a story about someone who showed empathy today, we'd love to hear that about that as well. So send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Well, this has been another episode of Empathy, a podcast. Thank you all for listening and joining us, and we'll see you again next time. Bye, neighbors. Goodbye.